Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, good morning, Light Church. My name is Amber Burt, and I'm thrilled to be with you today. Um, I have a word on my heart for um, the second commandment as we are in our series, Thou Shall Be Free. Um, I did a lot of studying for this sermon. I watched The Prince of Egypt like 10 times. I'm partially joking, um, but my prayer would be that uh, the true character of God would shine through and that ultimately he would be glorified. So I'm going to jump right into our text, which can be found in Exodus 24 through 6, which says, You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. After reading the Ten Commandments, the elementary class of the 9 a.m. service here at Light Church were asked to share examples of their idols, classified as something or someone that matters to them more or distracts them from God. Their answers as follows. A Nintendo. TV. Sports, unspecified, just sports in general. Taylor Swift, and as one nine-year-old girl shared with conviction in her heart, her hair. This list may have few edits for you, but the reality is that we all worship to some degree, something or someone that matters to us more than God. You may have chuckled under your breath, but I think there's something so sincere about the way that the idols of our lives are so ordinary, so elementary, and so average. Although reading through the Ten Commandments may sound arbitrary or irrelevant, I think that just as God was attempting to teach a previously enslaved people how to be free, a lot can be learned about the character of God and who God is and how he brings freedom to us here and now. God himself, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, was explicit in saying you should have no other gods before me, meaning they were indeed other gods, lowercase g, within the context. As the surviving people of God's promise, the Israelites, while enslaved under Pharaoh's regime, lived for centuries within Egyptian society surrounded by multiple deities. The Egyptians worshipped various gods associated with their various values, like land and protection. To name a few, Happy, believed to be um, in the Nile River, divine powers, Kanam, who was the guardian of the Nile source, Nut and Shu, deities of the sky and the air, Min, God known to bring about protection, Isis, the great mother goddess, healer, and protector, and Pharaoh himself were believed to have divine light qualities. In reading through Exodus, the parallels between the Egyptian gods and the Lord's judgment that brought the plague onto Egypt before the giving of the Ten Commandments, which we don't have time to get into today, but they are purposeful and resolute. God himself says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and strike the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. The Egyptian gods of the day could effect no change in the course of any of the plagues. As a result, revealing to the Egyptians and the Israelites God's very power. Then again, God reveals his power and provision in leading the Israelites through the Exodus, which he had promised to do earlier in the text. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians sold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out of the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give for you a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now through Moses, the Israelites were aware that God has made them a promise and that God is a God who hears. God again shows his sovereignty to the Israelites during the Passover. The Israelites were to place the blood of lambs on their doorposts. So when God brought about the last one of the plague, that they would be spared. That's why it's called the Passover. Following the great acts of mercy, Moses then reminds the Israelites not to forget what God did for them, saying, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by my strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. After being exposed to God's omnipotence, through the plague and the Passover, the reality of who God is as a promise keeper and delivering them from the hand of slavery, God continues to reveal parts of himself to the Israelites, this time as provider. Exodus thirteen seventeen says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that way was shorter. For God said, If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert and towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, ready for battle. Verse 21, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel day and night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar by night left its place from the people. What a beautiful picture of God. God who never left his people, a faithful God. Following the trajectory of the Israelite story up until the giving of the Ten Commandments, God again reveals himself as a compassionate father who works on his people's behalf, even when they might not see it. Actively fleeing from Pharaoh and his army, the Israelites looked up. There were Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to God. They said to Moses, Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us? Out to the desert to die. The drama, the plot thickens. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Did we not say to you in Egypt, leave us alone to serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve Egyptians than to die in the desert. But Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. As you may be familiar with the story, God parted the Red Sea and the Israelites successfully passed through on dry ground. Verse 30, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of God displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses as his servant. 
At this point in the text, God has again and again revealed himself to the Israelites. And as readers, we feel like, wow, they're really starting to get it. They even write this beautiful love song to God about the ways that he delivered them from the Red Sea and from the hand of the Egyptians and that he will be their God reigning forever and ever. Once they cross the Red Sea, God continuously responds to their groaning and directly provides for them bread from heaven, water from rocks, and a continual compass from a cloud by day and fire by night. The Israelites have heard, seen, and experienced God as omnipotent, compassionate, gracious, overflowing in loyal love, faithful, just, merciful, glorious, and holy. God is not hidden or a mystery. He's intentional to make himself known, repeatedly telling Moses to tell the Israelites, saying, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. And after performing miracles, saying, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. As the narrative develops, the Israelites are being led by God to the promised land. And at this point, they have gone through it, but they're with God. The Israelites, now at Camp Sinai, where God gave the Ten Commandments, or the covenant, to which the Israelites respond, I'm down, I'm in, say less, we're there. Actually, we see this a few times when Moses is coming up and down from being with God, and the Israelites respond with, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. At this point, both God and the Israelites are in agreement. It feels almost as if the people of Israel understand that God is indeed their God who has brought them out of slavery and is now continuing to reveal his goodness by creating an exclusive covenant with them for them to be free. Meanwhile, God is doing the most. He again is speaking to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai and is making plans to reveal himself to his people in all of his glory by dwelling among them via the art of the covenant, all for the purpose of being with them. God was moving a holy moment that Moses experienced to a moment for all to experience. God said to Moses, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them, and I am the Lord their God. Moses went up the mountain about seven times. Big hiker guy, bless his heart. And I'm going to be honest with y'all. Each time he was up there, he would have been up there for a hot minute. Could you imagine being Moses? I mean, the amount of things he had to write down on behalf of God. In my Bible, it's about 14 pages, but that's at least like 50 scrolls on the instruction of the Ark of the Covenant, the altar, the Sabbath day, consecration of priests, the aesthetics of the tabernacle, the list goes on. All of these things would have been critical for the Israelites who have just been delivered from slavery, a lawless people in need for direction to receive. God was on the mountain with Moses, establishing a law for the purpose of life. As we learned last week, he rescued those from Egypt from their bondage and oppression and for their relationship with Yahweh and each other. And in the meantime, while God was writing his vows, eager to be with his people, whom he just kept his promise to, the Israelites, they grow impatient. Chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, 
Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, isn't this something? I know what you're thinking. Be serious. Be so frail. Here are the people who have seen, heard, and experienced the goodness of God for themselves. His radical rescue and his longing to be in relationship with them. Being reminded along the way that he is their God and he is the God that brought him their very freedom. And in a moment of impatience, in a moment of desire to worship something in between the now and the not yet of the promised land, Israel breaks the first two commandments of which they just agreed to. It's as if they forgot who God was and all he has done for them. In a moment of desperation, they created an idol, something that they were never meant to do. Which leads me to my first point, creation and creator. Exodus 32.4 says, And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Fashioned by human hands. From their God-created hands, the Israelites decided to become like God in his ability to create and created an idol. Mistake number one was that we were never meant to create the things that we worship because we are the created things. We are God's creation. By definition, a real God cannot be made. A real God makes, and thus his power is proven. It is the God that created you and I not by his hands at all, but from the very words he spoke. And God didn't make us just because. He made us with intention. Israel was to be an example to the other nations what God is like, for them to know his character. And the same for us. We are created in God's image, with the primary role to be a reflection of God's character and to be the representatives of his rule, to harness creation's potential and create beauty and order. And in this moment, Israel was to trust God, to trust his law, what to do and what not to do, to trust in God's definition of good and evil, but instead seize their own autonomy and define God for themselves. Similar to the garden, Adam and Eve, who were made in the image of God, thus for his glory, lived in a continual state of surrender. God prepared a good thing for them, and he presented them with a choice. As they walked in the cool of the day with God, they were fooled into thinking something that is not true of God's character, despite God revealing his goodness to them. Jackie Hill Perry, in her devotional Upon Waking, says this, Until, of course, the serpent showed up. The devil didn't try to delete the concept of surrender, and he didn't tell them they shouldn't surrender at all. All he did was put them in a position to surrender to something or to someone other than God where their bodies and their lives were given over to the glory of a created thing instead of the creator. Through temptation and deception, they were willing to sacrifice their entire selves on somebody else's altar because they stopped believing that God was the worthy one. Human beings were created to worship. We are created to surrender. It's in the very fabric of who we are. 
And because we are created by God, we are created for his glory. It's an honor to be made in his likeness, but do not be deceived. We are not God. Why? Because we ourselves were created by him. Daryl Johnson, in his book, That You May Live, says Yahweh knows what makes us tick. The lawgiver is not only the redeemer, the lawgiver is also creator. This is critical to realize and affirm. The giver of the law is the one who made us. To ignore or to go against Yahweh's law is to go against the grain of our essential nature. When we violate Yahweh's good law, we violate reality. We violate ourselves. When we humans take matters into our own hands as a means of control, we go against the very nature of who we were created to be and what we were created for. When we live in the reality of who God is, we live into the reality of who we are. We are able to respond with worship, with what we were made to do. But using borrowed breath from God, Aaron declared, these are your gods. It is a clear longing to worship, but the worship was misplaced and given to a created thing. Even though their God could not be more than what it was, and even though ignorant to the future, couldn't know what's to come, Israel still decided to give the calf the credit for what happened before its birth. In real time, Israel abandoned their knowledge of who God is despite his attempts to remind them and created a golden figure, a created being to suffice as their God, as if the creator God was in a few feet away, visible by a resting cloud atop the mountain, writing his vows to them below. That is our MO as humans here on earth, and more specifically in Southern California. We are antinomian, postmodern, and autonomous people. God said, let us make humanity in our image according to our likeness. And according to, we are not God's image, God's likeness. We are created in God's image, according to God's likeness. We are image bearers. We reflect the glory of God better than anything else in creation, but we are not the glory of God. We manifest something of the nature of God's character better than anything else in creation, but we are not the nature and character of God. Nothing in creation is God, and therefore nothing in creation can serve as the image of God. And yet, we live in the Mecca of self-realization, surrounded by idols, and I'm not just talking about the card of kook. These ideologies or ways of thinking aren't new. They simply are taking what the God of the universe has already told us, written and presented it in a way that is revelation to us, and allowing us to take the credit. They have a good sell, because who doesn't want to be in control of their lives? This is our deepest desire as human beings. We, like Aaron, turning to a created thing and saying, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Reflective of us today, how instead of attributing things like the stars, the sun, the moon, the oceans to the Creator and worshiping Him, our culture has made an idol of the thing itself and worships it. Every day, we are exposed to the reality of who God is. The top of Mount Sinai is in our view, and yet every day we seek astrology, manifestations, and crystals, basing our faith off of the things that are supposed to point us back to the Creator of it all. We as humans, Futile in our thinking, fool ourselves into thinking that we are like God. We assign created things that can never hold the weight of the very miracle that God has performed and call it something else. When the people saw Moses delayed to come down, other translations say, when a long time has passed, it was then the Israelites created their idol. And isn't this true of us? When a moment presents itself to exercise faith, 
and trust in God, creator of the universe, keeper of his promises. Instead, we trade holy for the profane, which leads us to creaturely worship, glorifying a made thing, as it says in Romans 1.25. Idolatry is a trust issue. It is not that the Israelites didn't believe in God. It is that they didn't trust that he would come through for them. For those of you in the waiting, sitting in the tension of the not yet, fall back. Trust him with your patience and swim in the truth that he is a faithful promise keeper. Point number two, idol and God. A.W. Tozer says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Jackie Hill goes on to say, if not restrained by self-deception, will tell you a lot about yourself and potentially how much of yourself is in love with a lie. What we believe about God directly affects how we approach God. As seen in the text, God reveals himself to be good, merciful, just, loving, gracious, glorious, trustworthy, jealous, and holy. And although God has revealed himself time and time again to the Israelites, the Bible says, Now, when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off. God's holiness, his transcendence, his omnipotent power to the people of Israel wasn't proof for them to believe. Rather, it was a means for them to create distance from themselves and the Almighty. It would have required great surrender and willingness from the Israelites to come up on the mountain. It is their impatience, fear, unwillingness to trust God and their belief about God that led them to create their idols. And we are no different. It is our impatience, our fear, unwillingness to trust God, and our belief about who God is that leads us to create our idols. What I think is interesting to note is that our idols cost us something too. To Israel, it was their rings, earrings, gold, and their very possessions needed to create an image of God, which, by the way, was given to them by the Israelites when they asked because of God's favor. Much like the golden calf, our idols would ask everything of us to create them, to give them life, faith, your soul, and they will return nothing. They even brought burnt offerings as if the symbol of sacrifice would make the golden calf do something or have an ability. Jackie Hill Perry says, knowing how idolatry functioned in history may lead us to believe that it doesn't exist now. Baal may have died along with the folks that gave him life, but the primitive form of idolatry has in fact transferred to us by way of nature and evolved into another less obvious version of the same. What might have been Baal once is now sexual identity, sex, autonomy, intellect, relationships, money, marriage, legalism, politics, power, ethnicity, food, social media, children, or whatever main thing you can think of. We take what God called good and remove a letter. Give it the ultimate status of our lives and hope that with all of our hearts, it will be the deity we baptize it as. The very things we are surrounded by begin to become our idols. We create idols of the things that are explicitly unholy and maybe the things that we think to be true about God also. God is telling us that idolatry consists not only of worshiping false gods, but worshiping the true God in a false way. We use our God-given imagination and becomes what John Calvin calls idol factories. Because there are many good people in our churches, we think we are immune. But we all have a reason to repent. Because of our wounds, pains, and sins, we all have a distorted view of who God actually is. 
The conviction is to begin to see God as He truly is and not as we have formed Him to be in our minds. We take God, holy, 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 and slowly localize Him, making what matters to us bigger than the reality of who God is. Our faith is as big as we would like it to be. We have made self an idol. And when we make ourselves idols, we see God equal, eye-level, in a box. We assign Him our emotions, personalities, our bends, and our preferences. We see the creator of the universe as one-dimensional and begin to love our idea of God, but not God Himself. Have you ever seen those videos on TikTok or Instagram Reels? The ones where you have to guess if the thing is real or if it's cake. And I'm not talking about the Netflix series that came out during COVID. Those were obvious and it was borderline offensive. Like, our eyesight's bad, but not that bad. But for real, let me tell you, those people have gotten really good at their craft. 95% of the time, I can't tell whether it's a real lime or if it's a cake posed as lime. And I wonder if the same goes for us. That some of us have been worshiping idols for so long that we can't tell the difference between God and our idols. Within our enclosure, we call Encinitas, coastal and chill vibes are our highest value. I get it. I myself drink the kombucha. But the lines are getting blurrier and blurrier, and who God is and what God has created has little to no distinction to the population around us. I speak plainly when I say that the idol of our region is the idol of comfort, which is true of God. God does indeed bring comfort. But as those made in His likeness, surrounded by idols, we too have watered down the very glory of God. The second command is about imagery. It specifically addresses creation. Because everything is created by Yahweh the lawgiver. None of it is Yahweh the lawgiver. Creation is not God. The work of God, yes, but not God. Creation is not even, as some religious system holds, an extension of God. God holds it all together moment by moment. Even creation cries out, holy is our Lord God. His bride has too become an idol. The church has idolized marriage, sexuality, identity, legality, rigidity, religious performance over people getting to know the God over it all. There has been a mass exodus of people walking away from the church because of our poor human attempt to be him instead of humbling ourselves to be like him. It's no wonder people can't separate God from the actions of the church because we somehow have made an idol of ourselves and have hurt people in Jesus' name. Preachers as celebrity, church leaders playing God, and the saints classifying sin. But at the end of every idol is ourselves. Our human desire to want to be independently in control at all times. But the truth is, we are needy independence, in need of something greater than ourselves sustaining our very existence. Jackie said, We should never expect an unholy thing that was made with our bare hands to be sovereign enough or powerful enough to save us from anything when an idol's entire existence is dependent on whoever is that that brought them to life. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The word jealous has many meanings to different people. This kind of jealousy is not the kind you experience from your ex-girlfriend, Courtney, or the kind of jealousy that rushes through your body when your spouse orders something that you were thinking of getting and now you wish you had it. I hate that. That always happens to me. But my idol is pride, so I'll never admit it to Josh that his plate is better. God's jealousy is not a passing mood. It belongs to the very essence of God. His jealousy 
is born out of zeal to protect a love relationship and to avenge it when it's broken. God's jealousy, for us, exposes God's very character. Reverend Charles Spurgeon says, God is exceedingly jealous of his deity, jealous of his sovereignty, jealous of his glory, and jealous over his own people. Going on to say, dear friends, let this jealousy which should keep us near to Christ also be a comfort to us. For it will, we be married to Christ, and he be jealous for us. Depend upon this jealous husband, which let none touch his spouse. Our jealous husband will never let his church be in danger. And if any smite her, he will give them devil for every blow. The gates of hell shall not prevail against his church, but she shall prevail against the gates of hell. Her jealous husband shall roll away her shame. Her reproach shall be forgotten. Her glory shall be fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and tremble in the army with banners. For he that is jealous of himself is jealous for her fair fame. The subject is large and deep. Let us prove that we understand it by henceforth walking very carefully. And if any say, why are you so precise? Let this be our answer. I serve a jealous God. It is God's very holiness, his jealousy, that reveals to us the nature of who he is. God is jealous for our freedom. No creature can get beyond itself or the body it lives in. But God is not like us. He is not restricted by anything in heaven or earth when it comes to how he chooses to show up. Which is why he is not only the perfect answer, but the only answer to saving not only Israel, but us. God unlike our idols, is transcendent and infinite. He has the power of being within himself and requires nothing outside of himself. He is so other, so infinitely different, and so set apart. He is immutable, never changing, and remaining the same. He is omnipotent, unlimited in power, outside creation in space and time. He is omniscient, all-knowing, and the author of all things. He is omnipresent, able to be everywhere at once through His Spirit. Glorious, gracious, merciful, kind, just, good, faithful, and loving. He is bigger than an image, bigger than a mental picture, and the box that we put Him in. He is the very breath in our lungs. He is living water and the good news. He is multidimensional, infinitely multi-layered, and eternally magnificent. There is not enough synonyms in the world to sum up the magnitude that God is. God's holiness is not up for interpretation. He is holy. For Israel, the making of a godlike image was an inappropriate response to the giving of the law. Deuteronomy 4, 10 through 12 says, How on the day you stood before me, the Lord your God at Horeb. The Lord said to me, Gather all the people to me, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness in a cloud of gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard a sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. Images were prohibited because God was attempting to make himself known by a means of his very word. All images of God, drawn by creation, by a human being, 
by the imagining creature fall short of God's glory. Idol worship distorts our view of God. No one image tells us everything. If we stay with one image, we box God in. God is on the throne, for example. It is the dominant image of the book of Revelation. Thank God, God is on the throne. There is no time where God is ever not on the throne. But if I only hang on to that image, as true as it is, I will miss out on the equally true, powerful image of God on his knees, sacrificing himself in service to us. God forgives Israel and promises to renew the covenant. And today, we are under the new covenant because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in the present, God did not leave humans to their own devices. In our innate neediness, God gives the ultimate image of himself in Jesus. As Colossians 1.15 puts it, Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which is our last point today. And as Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus is the only image that doesn't limit God's glory, that doesn't lead us astray. He is indeed our reference point and the only image of God that is truly God. In him, all fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, as it says in Colossians 2.9. Church, this is the good news today, that in the vast very glory of God is, the same God who holds the worlds in his hands, is the same God that calls you friend, beloved, masterpiece. You see, God did this on purpose. He is holy, 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 and he is also the shepherd of the one. He is both and. His holiness, omnipotence, omnipresence, om- his holiness, omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience should be a means for us not to stand far off, but to approach his throne with grace and boldness. Why? Because in him we find everything that we need. Since scripture declares that we were not only made by him, but for him, it should be no surprise that we will never be whole without him. More than that, if everything good exists because of him, then there is nothing that exists that is better than him. We were made by and for Jesus. We can only be satisfied in him and him alone. In a culture soaked with idolatry, whether it be success, money, comfort, sex, our ability to produce, it is difficult to keep God, God. In talking about idolatry with my good friend Tamara, she said dependence is the key to fighting idolatry. Relying on God for the very breath in our lungs, we must remember, trust, and know God. We must choose loyalty, faithfulness, and dependence on him above all else. We cannot do it on our own. We're all in need of a savior. We all worship something. For we become what we worship. We all become what we idolize. When we submit to God, he reveals to us our idols. Our sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Moreover, As Jackie says, the lie being that once my hands are open and empty, God isn't big enough or good enough to fill them up again. Our fear of surrender is really our unbelief that God isn't better than everything God is asking us to give him. You will only give God anything when you believe he is everything. 
on the other side of surrender is God. So come, bring your cardboard cutouts of your Savior to Jesus, and he will replace them with more of himself. It's for your freedom's sake. I'll close with this in 2 Corinthians 3.18 as our prayer. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.